Welcome, everyone, to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I'm your host, Paul Niefer, and today we're going to welcome uh, Marsha Ruff. I believe, if I remember right, Marsha, you're based or located somewhere in Ohio. Do I have that right, or, or am I off one state? No, you're correct. We're in Ohio, lo- centrally located, just about 30 minutes south of Columbus in Circleville, Ohio. Okay. Well, I've done the uh, Midwest crop tour a few times, and we've started in Columbus, Ohio. So uh, uh, I've been there uh, oh, uh, probably four or five times. And then it was funny, the first time I was going to Columbus for the Midwest crop tour, uh, I was riding with Chris Barron. We were riding in his pickup. And um, as we were going along, I would take a photo and I would tweet out you know, something I thought was fairly interesting. Uh, but... Uh, embarrassingly one of the tweets i tweeted out somehow autocorrect changed one of my words to lingerie and that <laughs> didn't go very well i mean i got teased about that i think for three or four years oh i bet <laughs> now you just won the trailblazer award which is based on the executive women in ag that top producer does so that's that's a great accomplishment for you Thank you very much. I'm very honored to be the one chosen this year. Yeah, no, no, we were, you and I were in uh, uh, Nashville a couple of weeks ago, probably as this airs, it'd probably be about a month ago. So uh, it, it was fun to get a chance to have a quick talk with you and, and look forward to the podcast here. Well, thanks for having me. We had a great time in Nashville. The producer summer was great as always. And Nashville's a very fun town to be in. Yep. Yep. Next year it's Kansas city. It's, it's, it's fun, but maybe not as much fun as Nashville. Well, I think we'll go and we'll have to find out next year. <laughs> now, as we do on all of these podcasts that I do, I, I always like to start off with, with the background. The, the listeners out there, I think, always like to find out uh, where you grew up, your education, and so on. So let's start with that. Okay, well, um, I grew up in uh, Pickaway County, Ohio, which is where we reside still. Uh, we have never strayed too far from our family and our and our roots, so we're still here. Um, my husband and I both went to the same high school, and we graduated from there, and we went to a different college. He went to Ohio State University, and I went to the University of Rio Grande in Southern Ohio, um, where I achieved my bachelor's degree in elementary education. Um, I started teaching third grade back in 1996. And then I worked on my master's degree, which I got from Ashland University, also in Ohio, and that's in curriculum and instruction. So that's kind of where I got my start. Um, My husband graduated from Ohio State University with an ag education degree, and he began teaching high school agriculture, which he did for about three years. Um, I'm currently in college again as a 40-something. I'm getting a business degree this time, uh, business management with a focus in marketing, just our stage of life and uh, where we are with um, the farm. I thought that that would be really beneficial to operation if I could pursue that. So that's kind of my educational background. And then, of course, as a teacher, you have to keep going back to school anyway. Yeah. Uh, they require that every few years. You have to have so many classes. So the education can. So I try to pick things that are interesting and progressive and innovative uh, to keep that fresh 
and uh, keep myself on top of what's new in the trends and what's best for the students that I teach. Yeah, I'm just curious, you're in Ohio and I heard that you graduated from Rio Grande University. The Rio Grande River is a long ways away from Ohio. How did it get its name? I'm just curious. Well, that is very interesting. The little town, they actually call it Rio, Rio Grande. Uh, it's in Southeastern Ohio. And when they named that little town, um, they had picked out a different name. It was gonna be Adamsville, Ohio, but they found out when they registered with the post office that there was already an Adamsville, so they couldn't have the name. And at that time, uh, the conflicts going on in, in, at the Rio Grande River down in Texas were going on. And that was the name that people saw on the paper, but having not been there, they assumed it was Rio Grande, like Ohio. <laughs> So that's how it got its name. So kind of have to verify that when you're Rio Grande, you know, it's Rio from Ohio. Yeah. Okay. We'll have to, uh, I'll have to check into that. It was just uh, curious when I heard that, I was like, Rio Grande, that's uh, nowhere near, because uh, I'm based in Colorado right now and the Rio Grande River certainly starts probably, I think, maybe less than a hundred miles from where I sit. So uh, it's okay. down in the Southern part of the state. So, uh, well, so you both have an educational background. You know, you continue to teach kids and then your husband had taught ag in high school for about three years. How did you get started with the family farm operation? Well, we both have a farming background, um, you know, and as a lot of people do, if you look back a generation or two, somebody in your family probably farmed at some point. So uh, at least around here. Um, so my family um, has... Uh, farm that's been passed down from generations, um, which my parents still hold. It's about 100 acres of the original family farm. So I grew up with that. Um, now, my parents worked off the farm as well because the, the farm at that time was not enough to support a family. When my dad grew up, it was enough to support a family. But, you know, as times change, but yep. we still had cattle on the farm and uh, we raised our 4-H pigs and uh, we kept the, the 100 acres of the original family farm going. So I grew up, you know, driving tractors and riding the combine with my dad and uh, having cattle for, um, you know, our own freezer beef and they turned into 4-H projects. And uh, then, you know, my husband has a background too. His uh, grandfather farmed in the area. Um, his parents started farming full-time in the 80s, which if anybody goes any research, you know, the 80s was a pretty tough time on farmers. Definitely. And uh, in 1980, here, there was a very catastrophic hailstorm that took out uh, pretty much all of their crop. So that was a pretty tough time for them. So they eventually transitioned out of full-time farming. Um, but my husband and I were both in FFA taking ag in high school. And that's kind of where we met. But, uh, you know, I was raising the cattle for my FFA project. Uh, he was raising cattle. He also was baling hay, doing custom baling, doing his own baling. And so we had that kind of going for us at that point. Um, by the time we got married, I had gotten out of the cattle business. That was pretty much my college money as I had <laughs> sold off my cattle herd. So um, that's a little different than a lot of kids. Most kids get a job. I raised cattle. But that, that paid for my college. And uh, then uh, after we got married, we did a lot of bailing. I drove the baler quite a bit. And I uh, used to tease my husband was better at it than he was. Yep, yep. I but, think women uh, usually are. They're, they're more careful than well, those guys are. 
you know, he told me the exact same thing. So we liked it because I could just bail it, leave it on the ground. And he had a stack wagon. He could come later. So I didn't have to worry about anybody on a wagon. I could just do my own thing. So we did that for a while. Um, then he he actually rented my parents, um, the, the family farm, getting us some uh, crop row acres there. And then his parents had about 50 acres that, um, you know, he'd raised the hay and the cattle and then started a little bit of that in some row crops. And then um, we were able to acquire a few more acres. And then after about three years of teaching, uh, my husband and I decided if he wanted to farm full time, then this was the time to do it. We were young, married, didn't have any children. It was a good time to kind of make that leap of faith. And um, we just started acquiring more acres. And, uh, you know, he loved the teaching. He loved the students. He taught juniors and seniors in high school ag, and he really loved it. But confined to four walls on somebody else's schedule was not his thing. And he wanted to be, he wanted to farm. He wanted to be out doing things. So uh, we gradually started from there. So we come from a farm background, but we are in essence, a first generation farm in, in another way that we have built uh, what we've started, uh, starting in 1997 when we got married, um, kind of building our acres from there and uh, steadily growing over the years. So you, you essentially back then started with what, about 150 acres, the 100 acres that your parents had plus the 50 acres his parents had. Is that about right? Or was there a little bit more than that? That would be the initial acres that we had to work with. And then uh, started talking with some landowners and, you know, year after year trying to, to build those acres. And so where are you at right now with the farm operation? Uh, we're currently right around 4,000 acres. Okay. Okay. My memory is when we were at Top Producer and the video uh, was on the screen that isn't, or maybe I have this wrong, but I thought, aren't you doing some like popcorn or something like that? Or do I have that wrong? We're doing ear corn. Ear corn. That's it. Yeah. Uh, so yes. for the listeners out there, explain to them what ear corn is and what you're doing with that process. Okay, well, ear corn is when the corn, the regular field corn that you might see uh, being grown by farmers, uh, usually, you know, that's a combine is run through it and it's shelled off the off the cob and then yep. taken to market. We, however, um, my son, my teenage son owns a corn picker, an old fashioned corn picker that you pull behind the tractor and it harvests the ears whole. It does not take the kernels off the cob. So it take the takes the husks off. Um, but then they just remain on the ear. So then we, we put those into storage and kind of the niche market that, um, we have, uh, really due to my son's, uh, FFA high school FFA project is he is selling the ear corn on Amazon and he's got a few other local outlets for it as well, but people are buying it to feed their squirrels or maybe some other wildlife, but uh, primarily squirrels are the consumer of the ear corn that it is sold. So you go ahead and dry the, uh, so do you put this through a dryer or you just wait until the corn is so dry that you don't have to worry about moisture? Or I guess I'm just curious uh, that process and then when you decide to ship it. Right, so, um, you know, we try to, to harvest it at a good moisture. We don't want, we don't want it too wet because um, it's going to be in stored in large totes. There's really no way to put it in any sort of dryer with it still on the ear. 
Right. So we want to harvest it at a good moisture. Um, we don't want it too dry where it's, you know, cracking and falling off the cob either. Um, yeah. But we have some uh, some large totes that are lined with snow fence that give it some breathable air. But mm -hmm. the totes can be stacked up. And uh, we actually have three empty semi trailers that we can stack those in. And then that way they're closed up and then they're safe from weather, um, any sort of critters that might be around that are interested. Um, you know, we can keep that very regulated and keep, keep it good. So, um, and then as, as the orders come, uh, the boys can go out there with the uh, skid steer loader and unload what they need. And um, we've got some different setups. We've had a big sorting table where basically they dump the toad out and they've sorted through the ears. Uh, we really try to just sell the really good ones um, because that's what people want. They want a whole right. ear of corn. They don't, they don't want something that's, you know, half gone or uh, broken or anything like that. And then, you know, if there's any, any husks that were missed, I mean, this is all hand sorted. Right. Um, so then uh, they bagged it up and it's usually 22 to 24 ears comes out to about the 12 ish pounds for the bag and uh, they box it up. They have a flyer they put in there, you know, kind of a thanks for ordering. Here's our information. It's a high school FFA project. Um, and then they seal it up and uh, print the uh, shipping labels off of Amazon and we take it to the post office or some of them are shipped UPS depending on, you know, how that works with the shipping um, and the way it goes. So if I go to Amazon, it, it's basically one product. It's a 12 pound bag of approximately 22 to 24 years. Is, is that how it's it's listed on Amazon? It is listed, yes. Rough Farm Ear Corn uh, is what it's listed under. And uh, yes, we've stuck with the one product. Uh, my son experimented with a what he called a perfect ear box because a lot of people really wanted perfect ears. And it was 12, what they considered perfect ears, so the best of the ears that we could find. And some people really liked it, and we sold some of those, and it was a smaller box, 12 ears, a little cheaper. Um, but it just never really took off, and so it just seemed to be the bigger bag is what people were looking for. Okay. And so how many, how many acres are you now using for the whole ear? The uh, the original 50 acres here um, where we live now, which is where the um, my husband's family had retained, um, we're using that field here has worked out really well. Um, just the proximity with the harvesting with the picker and having to haul uh, gravity bed wagons basically back to the barn and get it stored. Uh, that field has worked out wonderfully. So about the 50 acres is what we've been using. Okay. Uh, do you think uh, as time goes on, this will become more and more of your farm operation? It's it's certainly a value added, a niche product. And uh, I don't think there's very many other farmers out there doing anything like this. I don't know of anybody real locally that is doing anything like this. Um, it really has served my oldest son, Matthew, very well. I mean, he was able to uh, put away, you know, a good amount of money towards his college fund. Um, yep. So that has helped. Um, his younger brother, Mitchell, is kind of the day-to-day -day manager now that uh, Matthew's gone off to college this year. So, so he, has, um, he has very you know, cheap labor is what you're saying. <laughs> so, well, I don't know. Between brothers, there's a lot of trade-offs in what that actually costs <laughs> you. Intangible, I guess. But yeah. 
so yeah, they're, they're working through that. And, uh, so then my son has, uh, hired a couple of kids from school to come help him a couple of days after school, just it goes faster that way. Yeah. Uh, more hands sorting. And then, you know, occasionally it's a family project. There might be a day we all go out and just kind of help just get ahead. So when, you know, the kids are busy with activities, we've got a little stockpile ahead. So yeah, it's been all hands on deck for us for that project. Um, as far as increasing the acres of that, at this point, I think we're pretty good. We've been able to run through the inventory we have without it getting old or brittle or having any storage issues and still able to fill the orders. So um, if the trends continue, um, it's holding steady right now. So we may just keep with this for now. Okay, good, good. Uh, I, I will admit, uh, I think I'm up to close to 100 podcasts, and this is the first podcast I've had where we talked about holier corn. So that's that's good. I like that. So now, as far as the rest of the farm operation, are you primarily corn, soybeans, maybe some wheat? I'm just curious. Or do you have any livestock? Uh, we are primarily corn, soybeans, and wheat. Um, we do have some beef cattle here at the at the farm where we live. Um, we joke that right now the kids have more cows than we do. Okay. Uh, once they got involved in 4-H, uh, the herd kind of uh, built back up. You know, we've done different things over the years. We had, um, you know, seasons of life again, where you are and what you have the most time and ability to do and how old your kids are and what they're doing. But once the 4-H projects came along, um, the kids were interested in the beef cattle and, and showing them as breeding projects. And then the boys have done some uh, markets tier projects as well. Um, so, which that was really gratifying. My oldest son was able to use his breeding project to produce uh, two show steers for last year. And he won the County Born and Raised Reserve title with an animal he produced from his own breeding stock. So that was kind of a sense of pride on that. No, that would um, be good. Yeah, so it was very, very good for his senior year in 4-H to kind of go out with a bang on that note. Um, so I would say at the moment, we probably have around, I think it's around 18 head here at the house. We have uh, a cow-calf operation, basically. And then in addition to that, we have um, nine animals in a feedlot. My younger son, Mitchell, is um, feeding those out to sell his freezer beef. Oh, okay. Yep. So he's done that. This is about his third round of that. Uh, it's been very well received. People want to buy local. They want farm raised beef. They want to know where it came from and, and that somebody took care of it. It was fed and all those things. So he's uh, he's got about nine of them out there right now. Well, that's a good start for his college. Uh, that'll help pay for college. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Like mother, like son. So <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so do you have any full-time employees or are you able to handle it mostly yourself with some part-time help during planting and harvest? Uh, we do have some full-time employees. Um, we have uh, right around six at the moment um, because we do have, along with running the farm, we also have a uh, field tile and drainage business. Mm, so okay. we have some employees that are, are dedicated to that venture. Um, you know, those things sometimes overlap with the farming. You know, you can't have people in two places at one time, but it's also a different skill set of what needs to be done. So we kind of have a uh, dedicated crew for that. And then we have some that are dedicated uh, farm employees. 
Um, we do have a full-time employee that works in our office and I hesitate to call her an office manager because she's so much more than that. She takes care of so many financial things. So I don't have a good title for her, but she's here and does a really great job for us keeping everything on track. And, and uh, then we do have a few, you know, seasonal employees, um, you know, in the summer, we try to get somebody that'll do just the mowing around all the properties. And that's just kind of their job. But, you know, that's only, you know, two or three months in the summer. Yep. Um, you know, things that come up. Uh, we've been lucky to have some people that uh, maybe they have a full time job somewhere else, but maybe they have evenings or weekends. Um, we have one guy that, uh, you know, with his CDL, that makes it very nice that he can drive semi forest during harvest. Uh, just puts one more person in the rotation. So um, we've been been fortunate to find a few people like that, that uh, they like working on the farm. And when they have those extra moments and they're available, we can utilize them. Perfect, perfect. Now, you certainly have grown the farm over the last 20 or so years. Um, what, what do you think you did right the best? And what do you think you did wrong the worst, so to speak? And that's probably not proper English, you being a teacher. I, I probably <laughs> messed up on the question there, but uh, you understand what I'm asking. Yes. Well, it's more fun to think about what we did right. Um, I think one of the biggest things that we do right is we build relationships with people. Um, you know, we have landowners that have been with us in this journey for the past 20 some years. We, we still work with the same, several of the same landowners because we build a relationship with them. We don't just drop off a rent check once or twice a year. Um, we've worked with them and what we can do to improve a property or, you know, can we plow your snow in the, in the winter to help you out, get you out of your driveway. Um, you know, we've done different things to just build truly a relationship with the people that we work with um, so that we're not just, just a rent check. Yeah. Um, so I think that's been really important. Um, and really it's, it's nice to, to work with those people year after year and you know when you meet with them to go over your contract or your rental agreements and you spend an hour with them and you realize 45 minutes of it was talking about the kids and the weather and what's been going on and you realize the last 10 or 15 minutes well maybe you ought to talk about the rental agreement and <laughs> sign the paper for the next year so you know um it's it's been really nice to do that so i think that's something that we have really um I think that's something that we've really just done right. Um, you know, we've tried to instill that in the kids, um, you know, all three of them, that the people you work with, um, that you just build those relationships with them and, and sustain those things. Um, you know, I think another thing we do right is good stewardship of the land. Uh, we try to do the right things about, you know, what's right for conservation, what's right for fertility, um, what is right for each piece of property that we have um, so that it can remain in production um, and it's good for the next year, the next 10 years, the next generation, whatever that may be. Kind of that, you know, you, you take care of things, you leave it better than you found it. Um, I think stewardship is really um, a strength that we have as well here on the farm. Um, and those are good both of those are important. I mean, I think so often we think the important thing is maybe we got land or, or whatever else, but really it's that relationship with those landlords, with your employees, that that's even more important. 
Yes, because really, if you don't have some of that, then um, you really, you don't continue to grow. Uh, you don't sustain things. Um, and it really is, it's just a job and it's not a way of life. Yeah. And have you done anything wrong? Well, nobody likes to admit when you've done anything wrong, but I think we always like to look at things like, what did we learn from what we did? Yeah, um, yeah. It's funny when I thought about that question at the very first, the first thing that popped in my mind was our very first combine we bought. Um, and I'm not one to keep track of, you know, numbers on equipment. My husband can now, you know, rattle off the number of every tractor we've ever owned. But I do remember this combine. <laughs> very vividly it was you know we were young we we bought a used combine what we could buy at the time and we we maintained it the best we could and it's nothing bad against the combine it was just well used and we kept it at least one year too long and you got to realize sometimes when it's time to just move on and you know the joke was i would check on my husband in the field you know and he'd say i'm working on the combine i'll call you when i'm done and then he never called. So it just kind yeah. of got to be perpetual. So I think we've kind of tried to learn from that is when is it time to move on? You know, do you keep that equipment one more year? Do you try to move on? What do you do? Um, so I don't know that that's what we did wrong, but we tried to improve. I think over the years too, not that we did things wrong, but we tried to improve. It's on the paperwork and the record keeping uh, and yeah. the tax information. And, you know, I think it's hard for banks and farmers to get along with things because farmers don't operate on a calendar year. So when you're trying to do your finances for a bank or to do your taxes, you know, you're still selling a crop from a previous year into the next year. So how do you account for all of that? And what's the the record keeping on that to show a real picture yeah. of what's going on? Um, but make it fit within the within the, the forms and the boxes that, you know, a lender might want or to fill out your taxes. So those are really big learning curves that we've had over the years. And we've had to consult with people and you know, work with accountants and like, you know, how do we make this all work? So that yep. was, um, I don't know that we did it. I don't know we did it wrong, but I'm sure we, we learned a lot over the years to make it right. <laughs> yeah. You were, you were talking about that dreaded first combine. I remember when I think I was probably 17, maybe 18 and I'm driving the combine. Cause I've been driving full-time for my dad a couple of years already. And this horn started going off and I'm like, what's going on? So I go back there and it, it, the, and this was with the harvesting uh, dry peas, which has got a lot of vines back then. And it had built up and the horn went off, meant that the rear end of the combine had filled up with dry peas. And we're like, what is going on? And we just, my dad and I, and my dad was a very good mechanic. He overhauled engines and we just couldn't figure out. And it kept going off. I mean, it probably went off on me. 10 times and luckily we we're at the end of the harvest so it's only like a couple days left and turns out that the that the chopper blades in the very rear of the combine the chopper blades had gotten so worn out that they couldn't grab they weren't able to grab the dry peas because it was a very thick crop that year and you're right it's it just gets frustrating when you can't figure something out yes yes absolutely well uh, Marsha, we're going to go ahead and take a break for the sponsor message, and then we'll come back. We'll talk about how 
Being a full-time teacher actually maybe helps the farm operation or maybe a dozen and a few other topics and then, then we'll be done with our podcast. All right, sounds great. How many years away is the long run for a farmer? Five years? Ten years? Top producers like Hans Reinchi of Blue Diamond Farming Company in Jessup, Iowa, know Raboagra Finance shares his enduring vision for the future. Whether it's building our grain site, or if it's purchasing the next field, we're able to turn to Rabo as a trusted partner to help us get financing to make those generational decisions. With unmatched financial capacity, local relationship managers, and a global network of sector experts to offer market guidance, Raboagra Finance provides enterprising farmers with a personalized approach to lending and financial services. Growing a better world together, Raboagra Finance. back everyone to the Farm CPA podcast. I am Paul Neeker, your presenter, and we're going to rejoin our conversation with Marsha Ruff from uh, Ohio. So Marsha, you are a full-time teacher. Um, my perception is that actually maybe helps the farm operation or maybe not. So why, why don't you just share with the listeners how, how that has worked out for you in the farm? Okay, well, um, I have been a teacher um, in our school system for 27 years. Um, so, and I've taught various grade levels. I have one of those uh, teaching certificates that's uh, multi-grade level. So sometimes I have been moved around either by my choice or not. Um, so I've taught various levels. Um, so starting out teaching full-time um, and then, uh, you know, you get some health benefits from that and, and that certainly helps. Uh, now, several years ago, there was an opportunity that came up. It's called a job share, where it's two people share one job. And I did take advantage of that. So uh, currently, I work half days. Oh, okay. So that is a nice arrangement. I share with a really good friend of mine. Um, you know, she also has three children, and her husband has a pretty taxing job. So, uh, you know, it helps out with the family dynamics on her end, and it helps out on mine end as well. So um, we have, uh, I guess, how that helps the farm operation. Um, I guess in the beginning, it was nice, you know, especially when my husband, uh, you know, we left into him working here full time and not having the teaching job. I knew I had a paycheck every two weeks. Yep. You know, yep. Uh, people don't always nice. Yeah, it is. It was nice. And I had the health insurance through the school. So that helped. Um, you know, people off the farm, you know, they don't always realize that, um, you know, farmers don't get paid every two weeks. It's a very seasonal kind of paycheck. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, there was some stability in that. So that is nice. Um, with my current status, I don't have the, the health insurance um, option at this point. Um, but we, you know, we have private arrangements for that. But it still is nice to know that I do have a little bit of that um, stability of some, you know, paycheck every couple of weeks. Um just to just to keep the the cash flow going, so that helps out. Um, so my current arrangement with um, the halftime that does offer me more time with our children, which was a big priority. Um, but it also frees me up to do some things. You know, if we have meetings with um, 
consultants or, you know, we have meetings with lenders or landowners or things like that. I have freed up a little bit more to do those kind of things as well. Um, I do a lot of errands to the post office with the corn business because my younger son doesn't have a driver's license yet. So it, it kind of falls on me for now, but that's okay because I have the time to do it. So I have some time during uh, daytime hours to get a few things like that done. Um, so, and it also, I mean, teaching is a passion that I have. So it allows me that chance to still do that part of my life that I love, um, but also be a better, more present parent, a more present wife, a more present farm, um, you know, presence here so yeah. that I can, you know, balance that a little bit more because there's a lot that, that goes on. So, um, so That's do you typically, do you typically work in the morning and then the other person does the afternoon or is it alternate or I'm just curious how you do that as far as the schedule? Right. I work the afternoons. So, um, you know, I get the kids off to school in the morning and then I have a few hours in the morning uh, after they go. I have uh, about three and a half, four hours in the morning before I go to work so I can get uh, quite a bit of things done around here. So, cause I'm even working, you know, on our Facebook page for the farm and I'm going to be working on our website soon. So that gives me a lot of focused uninterrupted time to do those kind of things even. And then I teach in the afternoon and then, you know, then I'm home for the after school running of activities and things with kids and then, you know, evening and time and whatever's needed. Yep. Uh, the, and uh, now you have a couple kids. They've already sort of, in my opinion, have a certainly an interest in in farming. You know the the whole the whole ear corn, the cattle operation, so on. Is there have you been working on the plan for the transition to bring them in, or is that still a little too early? I'm just curious what you're doing on in that arena. Well, we have started to talk about those things because in our mind, our kids will always be our kids but apparently they're growing up. So, <laughs> you know, I think a little wake up call was our oldest went to college. We've got one in high school and then we've got one in elementary. So um, they are growing though. So I think we'll need to start getting a little more serious about that. Um, you know, we've told our kids, it, you know, college and education, education of some, of some sort is important. And maybe it's not college, but Furthering your education and your skill set is good after high school. So they need to do something. And then we would really encourage them to go work somewhere else. Yep. Not that we don't want them, but if this is all they know, then that's not necessarily broadening their horizons. So they need to go work somewhere else and see what's out there, see how things are done. Um, you know, we would love to have all the kids come back. They, they do seem to have an interest. Um, Matthew, our oldest, he's always been interested in the machinery and the crops. Uh, Mitchell is always our animal guy. I mean, and he's the, he's the kid when he walks out to the barn, the animals walk to him. He <laughs> is that kid. And our daughter, um, she's 11. Um, she really, she's really taken to the cattle. Um, she grew a fantastic garden last year. I mean, she decided she wanted to grow a garden and she wanted to grow her own pumpkins and we canned her pickles and we made relish and we ate, you know, all of her produce. Um, so she's got some interest there. She says she could grow a big enough garden. She'd like to sell her things at a market. So, <laughs> you know, they've all got that interest. And then of course we tease that, you know, her being the younger 
sister of two boys, you know, she'll probably just always tell them what to do anyway. So she, <laughs> yeah. she could be the manager of this whole deal someday. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, they do have, a, they do have an interest. Um, but, you know, we've talked with some other farmers that have, uh, and particularly someone at the top producer conference we talked to, they, they have really worked to, you know, with a professional on the whole secession planning project. Yeah. And I think that we need to do that. I think we need to do it right so that, you know, there's no ifs, ands, or buts, and it's very clear. And, you know, the things that we've worked for are protected. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of times people just assume that, you know, the next generation inherits things and goes on, but, you know, I think things get more and more complicated. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that they'll always be your kids, but they are growing up, uh, you know, in my family, I have four boys and, and I'm only 5'10 and my oldest son's about 6'4 and, and my wife goes, you know, I knew when they were no longer boys, when I'm, I'm actually chewing out my oldest son. It, well, she was at the sink and he was behind her and she's sort of chewing him out and she turns around and she's continuing to chew him out. And she finally realized she's talking to his chest. <laughs> at that point, she goes, you know, I'm probably, you know, not really the adult anymore. So, you know, so but uh, just one of those things. But uh, they're still your kids. That's right. That's right. Always are. Well, I guess uh, we're getting close to the end of the of the podcast. I, I always have two or three or four questions for you. Uh, first, who, who do you think your mentor was in, in this journey that you've had? Well, I think I'd always give credit to my parents. Um, both of them always have worked very hard in their life. I mean, they worked the farm that we had, uh, but they worked off the farm too. And they just really showed me a good work ethic and that you have to, to work hard. And there's a lot of satisfaction in working hard and having the fruits of your labor. Um, you know, they always encouraged me, you know, if you want to do something, go after it, figure out how you want to make it happen and do it. You know, don't wait around wishing you had done it give it a try, go for it. So I would say that, um, you know, I would say probably specifically, um, you know, as a female role model, I'd have to say my mom, um, you know, she did all the mom things, you know, she yeah. worked full time, but she was the PTO president. She had the youth group at church. She taught Sunday school. Um, she went back to college in her thirties. Um, you know, she did all the things and, and, and she somehow always had a clean house too. I haven't figured that part out yet, but, uh, so anyway, but, uh, you know, she showed me, you know, working hard and, you know, if you, she worked through some, uh, some illnesses and some surgeries and she just kept plugging away. And I still, that's what she, you know, they're, my parents are both still doing today. They're getting older, but they haven't quit. They, I said yep. they move slower, but they're still moving. So yep. they keep no, going no. at it. Yeah. Yep. So Definitely, you know, and I know in our, um, you know, as part of uh, when I was at CLA, um, you know, if we could hire somebody that grew up on a farm, uh, we had a pretty good idea that the, the work ethic was going to show through. So that that definitely was a was a positive. Absolutely. S especially if they grew up on a dairy farm, because they 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 knew how to work. <laughs> they did, and yes, from morning till night, you bet. Yeah. 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 And then uh, finally, uh, you know, another question for you is that, um, you know, you're a full, uh, well, part-time teacher, sort of a full-time farmer. Uh, do you have any time for some hobbies? And if so, what are they? 
Well, I like to do some creative things. I mean, I know how to sew. I knew how to crochet and cross stitch and those things. Um, so I like some of those creative things. And uh, those are things that my daughter likes to do with me. I mean, I started canning not out of necessity for food, but because I enjoyed doing it. So those are some things that she's picked up to do with me as well. So, um, you know, she's way more artistic than I am, but we like to do creative things. So those are good stress relievers. Um, I used to read books like full length adult books, but those days are not here right now. I read a lot of children's books at school yeah, and, uh, I do try to read a lot of periodical publications and, you know, I find myself reading a lot of, uh, gardening magazines and trying to help my daughter with that. And, you know, there's always the, um, you know, we get a plenty of supply of farm magazines around here, but. Um, you know, just trying to keep up with those things. So I do like to read when I have the chance um, and just, you know, keep my keep my brain working in different ways and try to expand what I know. Yeah, no, that's, uh, uh, yeah, that's one of the things that I still enjoy. I still got my eyesight and so on. I still read somewhere between 100 and 150 books a year. I've read over 100 books since the fourth grade every year. So that's, that's uh, I guess you could call that one of my hobbies. That is fantastic. And then the teacher in me is like very jealous. Like, that's fantastic. Reading all those books. That's that's what I encourage everybody to do. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just, you know, it's just something. It's, like I said, I went to a, a very small rural school. There was six kids in my class and there was first and second grade was in one classroom. And then third and fourth grade was in another classroom. When I was in fourth grade, my teacher knew that I was sort of bored because when I was in third grade, I sort of learned everything that the fourth graders were doing. So right. she said, why don't you start reading books? So I started reading books. And I think my record in sixth grade, my teacher told me to keep track of all the books I read. And I think after 500, I stopped. So I was reading two or three or four books a day. So that's that's I, I, my cruising speeds about 100, 150 pages an hour. That's just what I cruise at. So. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Now. What keeps you up at night? Is there anything that keeps you up at night? Well, truthfully, the way we work around here, by the time I go to bed at night, I usually just fall asleep. I'm, <laughs> I'm usually really tired and I stay up too late anyway, because I'm trying to get just one more thing done and one more thing done and let me check on this little project or let me do this, make sure this is done. So, you know, when I fall to bed at midnight every night and knowing I have to get up at 6.15 for the, the first child to go to school, um, I pretty much fall asleep. Um, but I would say in general, if I am thinking about something, you know, when you're a mom, I think you always worry about things. You're always worried about your kids. You know, did you, did you do the right things? Are we getting everything done? Are we on the right track? Um, you know, are the kids healthy? Are they doing well? I mean, all those things that, that a mom worries about that that just never stops. And I, and I hear from my mother that it never will. So <laughs> it just keeps going. Um, you know, occasionally you get into a project and, and you lay awake at night, making your mental list of the 5,000 you need to do tomorrow. And then it's like, no, that's not humanly possible, but you're trying to figure it all out. And when you get up in the morning and make the actual list, it's never really that bad. No. Um, but yeah. It's the anticipation you worry about more than the actual getting it done. 
Yes, yes. And I find worrying at night, there's no reasoning at two o'clock in the morning, nothing makes sense. So I just need to shut it off if I can and get the sleep so I can tackle it the next day. Exactly. And, and you are, I think you are right. There is a difference between mom and dads worrying about their kids. You know, my, my, uh, my wife would worry about the kids and I'm like, um, you know, especially since we had boys, it's like, okay, I know they're boys. They're going to do stupid things, but they're doing fine. Don't worry about it. But mom's still going to worry about it. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's our phrase around here is moms are moms and dads are dads. And there's a reason for that. So well, and actually, my, my wife's favorite saying is since we had four boys, her favorite saying was one boy, one brain, two boys, half a brain three boys, no brain. We have four boys. We're in a deficit. So that was one of her favorite <laughs> things. <so. laughs> but, uh, and then finally, uh, Marcia, and this has been a great conversation. What's your uh, definition of success in farming? Um, I would have to say, um, you know, if we're raising a quality crop that is essentially feeding the world, I would say that that is successful in farming, but that's successful in life. If you are helping maintain, you know, the world's food source by raising quality products, I would say that is a real success. Um, you know, going back to being good stewards of the land, um, protecting and preserving the precious farmland that we have. Um, I would say that is success as well to keep that, the land and production and, and contribute to defeating the world. Um, you know, and also I just think, you know, farming is just not a way for us to make a living. Um, farming is a, is a life for us. This is the life that we've made and that we love. Um, so, you know, if you love your job and you love what you do, I think there's just a lot of feelings of success in that. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Well, this is coming toward the end of the conversation. I wasn't sure if there's anything else you wanted to add or not, but uh, uh, this has been a great conversation so far. Well, I appreciate you offering to have me on today. I've really enjoyed this. Um, I, I the uh, being chosen for the Trailblazer Award was it was really a big surprise, and it's a big honor. And uh, you know. Education is the focus that I have. And if I can educate children to read, that's wonderful. If I can educate people about farming, that is wonderful. That is really what, you know, we need to do in our industry is educate people and be proactive and let people know what we're doing and, you know, that we're doing it well. Yeah, totally agree. Well, again, Marsha, thanks very much for being on the podcast. Uh, this is Paul Niefer, your host, and this is the Farm CPA Podcast, and Paul and Marsha are signing off.